Actors Talk Podcast, Episode 39. Hello there. This is Actors Talk Podcast, Episode 39. My name is Tommy G. Kendrick. I am an actor based out of the Austin, Texas area. I'm also the producer and host of our digital get-together here on Actors Talk. And I want to thank you so very much for spending some time with me for episode 39. Are you an actor? Are you aspiring to be an actor in film, television, commercials? If so, I am holding in my hot little hand a book that you are going to want to pick up. The book is No Small Parts, K-N-O-W. No Small Parts, subtitled An Actor's Guide to Turning Minutes into Moments and Moments into a Career. This is a book written by Laura Coyote, has a foreword by Richard Dreyfus, no less than Kevin Costner has a pull quote on the front cover. Oh yeah, too bad that there aren't any good people that really think this is a good book. Lou Diamond Phillips, producer Reginald Hudlin, uh, executive producer George Perkins of Desperate Housewives, Victoria Burroughs, renowned casting director, and Joanna Cassidy, actor uh, extraordinaire. No Small Parts, an actor's guide to turning minutes into moments and moments into a career. I like this book a lot. Uh, so much so that I have terribly abused it. I have underlined it. I have dog-eared it. And I have highlighted it. And I will refer to it uh, again and again, I'm sure. And I have been in the business a long time already. But if you're someone who is just beginning, this is a book that will be especially beneficial to you. All of us want to do lead roles, especially when we're young and the future is ahead of us, certainly, uh, hopefully, many, many more years than, than this old dog has left. <laughs> you look at your possibilities as you well should, and you envision yourself doing lead roles. But how are you going to start? Is somebody going to cast you in a lead when you've never done anything? Probably not. Yeah, it happens, but probably not. You're going to end up doing smaller roles. And smaller roles can have uh, challenges. Certainly they are tremendous opportunities, but there can be challenges. What do you do with a smaller role where you're not given much as an actor in terms of information about the character? You may not even get the entire script. You may get one page of sides with two or three lines, and there's not a lot there, but yet you, uh, your task as an actor is to create a character. How do you go about doing that with a smaller role? Well, that's the information that Laura Coyote imparts so beautifully in her book, No Small Parts. And I will just refer to it with that truncated title, No Small Parts. Laura has uh, 20-something years experience in Los Angeles. She's now living and working out of the New Orleans market. Boy, how fortuitous for her that she moved to New Orleans not long before somebody named Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, the name rings a bell, right? Before Quentin Tarantino decided to do Django Unchained and shoot it in Louisiana, as we say. Louisiana, for you people who are more refined than I am. Um, Django Unchained. Laura Coyote plays Laura Lee Candy Fitzwillie, a role that was actually written with her in mind. See, she had worked in another small part in a Tarantino film called Kill Bill. Some people, as I say, like myself, go an entire career doing mostly smaller roles. So it really is... Uh, important that we know how to approach those roles, how to audition for them, and what to do with them when we get them. That's what the book's all about. So I uh, hope you will enjoy that. Please visit me at actorstalkpodcast.com for show notes on this and all the 38 previous episodes. There are all sorts of links for each episode and information that will not necessarily appear in the audio version of the podcast. Join me after this interview in uh, the final remarks because I'm going to be announcing an upcoming interview that you are going to definitely want to know about and bookmark and hear. Uh, well, that's all I'll say about that now. Let's uh, get to the interview with Laura Coyote and her book, No Small Parts, An Actor's Guide to Turning Minutes into Moments and Moments into a Career. Thank you. 
you've really been out doing a great job of promoting the book. How has that experience been as an author? You know, the best part of it has actually been going out to schools and doing either Q&As or workshops or talking about the book with students in front of me or with actors in front of me. The most fun one was when I went to my own school in New York, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and walked into the theater where I had done my graduation play, and I was on stage telling people that were me 20 years ago how I got here. Yeah, that's got to be fun. It was very gratifying. And, and it was gratifying just to be somebody who 20 years later could say I was still working. Boy, isn't that the truth? I just had a birthday, and I used to not talk about my age at all. I mean, it was a closely guarded secret because sure. for, because for years I played much younger than my chronological age, and Absolutely. I learned very early on at an audition when someone asked me my age, and I told them, and then I learned that I didn't get the part because I was too old, even though they thought I was perfect for the part before I told them how old I was. Right. <laughs> right. So, Perception so at, is everything. Yeah. So at that point I said, oh, okay, I'll never mention my age again. But I just had a birthday when I turned 63 and I've been a member of Screen Actors Guild since 1978. So to me, I keep seeing these things about it being a marathon, not a sprint. And that resonates with me. <laughs> well, I just had a birthday two weeks ago or no, less, a week ago. Yeah, a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> you were talking about the, the, the fun thing of promoting the book and talking to students and how much fun it was going back to New York. Has there been a common thread to the kind of questions you get from those audiences? You know, I actually, I started out as a teacher. So it, 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 I taught college and that I thought I was going to do that for the rest of my life. So it's not the same experience as that, but it, but I love it for the same reasons that I loved that. And the biggest difference is that Somewhere in the first few questions, somebody's going to ask what it's like to work with Quentin Tarantino. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to come up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I even have a question about that. I know that's hard to believe, but yeah, yeah I, I actually do have a question about that before we uh, sign off here in a, in a little bit, but I won't get to it, you know, for right, right off, off the bat because I have some other things I wanted, wanted to ask you first. Now, in your book which uh, for the audience, again, is called No Small Parts. That's K-N-O-W. I love the title. Being an actor who has done mostly through my career, small parts. What was sort of the genesis of deciding to write the book? Well, I would love to say it was because I realized there was a hole in the book market for that. And I would love to say that it was because actors always say that small parts are the hardest, and yet there's no information out there about how to do them. But really, it started as I have a blog called L.A. Tanola, and I had actually started uh, formulating a book based on my 18 years in Los Angeles and how they brought me back to my roots in, in Louisiana. And, you know, I was gathering information about my L.A. story and putting that all together. And during that process, which was rather unwieldy, 18 years is a lot to pack into a book, but while I was figuring out which stories to tell and all that, I had a friend ask me to help coach her for a part that was in Django Unchained. And she was, you know, newer to, like most people in, in New Orleans, was newer to the industry. And, uh, well, she's newer to the planet. She's in her 20s. She was asking a lot of questions because we were friends. She felt safe asking me a lot of questions that she hadn't yet asked anyone. And as I'm answering them all, I realized how easy they were for me to answer and what a wealth of information that I have that I just take for granted. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe I don't need to write my L.A. story about, you know, I went here, I met this person, I had this party or, you know, whatever. Maybe really what I wanted to talk about was what I learned. This evening before I logged on, I, I just thought, you know, I'm going to do a Google search and just see if I can see how many books about acting or becoming an actor are available. And it seems to be thousands. Yeah, you but know? in the end, it's really not that many. But nobody's done, as far as I could tell, a book quite like this in the way that you've approached it. And for sure, what I know is that no one can bring to their book what you brought to yours, which is you and your experiences. Thank you. I do think that there are a lot of really great books out there by producers, by casting directors, by agents, by all sorts of people who are in the business of hiring us. And uh, they have a lot of great information to tell us about what they look for. 
I actually, though, have produced and cast, and at this point I've done, I've directed, I, you know, I've done all those things, and so I've been part of the selection process as well. But I, I noticed there weren't very many books by working actors telling you how they do what they do and how they got what they got. And I don't know how you can really tell an actor how to deal with this career and how to make the best of their moments without facing the realities of like having to change in your car and, you know, going years at a time with no agent. And, you know, those are the realities of our industry that aren't in the books. It's a comprehensive book. There, there's a lot of good information about the acting process and breaking down scenes, but there's also all sorts of information about moving from a, a regional market to LA and things to expect. The focus, of course, is, is as the book t- is titled, n- small parts. And how do you deal with those? And, and how do you make those moments shine? And that's something that I don't think anybody else has ever really approached. Well, I, I haven't found another book that deals with it. And, and like I said, every actor will tell you that those are the very hardest parts. The smaller the part, the harder it becomes to create an entire universe with a line. Uh, the line in my book is, your martini, sir. But it could be any line or even a page of lines. And, and even when we, as I say in the book, you know, even if you don't look at just the small parts like the you know, under fives and under tens in film and television, Almost every part is a small part anyway, because you have commercials, you have all those small parts, and you have also auditions, which auditions, even when you're up for a major part, most of the time, you're not going to get more than a few pages. Yeah. And it is tough because so often you're given much less information than if, than if you were right. doing a larger part. Right. So you right. really have to create a universe, in many cases, yourself and work from that. So it, it can be very, very difficult. You know, there's only going to be one Tom Cruise in the movie, right. but there are going to be dozens and in some movies, maybe even hundreds yes. of supporting and even smaller parts that, that yes. require actors. Yes, that's my experience. And that's not just my experience as an actor. That's my experience as a film and television watcher. Is it anything you watch? There's only going to be a few major roles and all the rest is going to be all the rest. And even in the world of, of celebrities, Tom Cruise, you're still going to end up at some point, if you're lucky, doing cameos. Let's backtrack a little bit. You went to Los Angeles from New York, is that right? Yes. And you had been doing mostly, uh, in addition to stage, commercials at that point, if I'm, if I'm correct. Well, my very first job at, as an actor was actually before I became an actor. I was a model, and I did a commercial. And that made me SAG eligible, but I didn't join right away because I didn't think I'd ever need to. And then I started my acting career, and... At first, I just did a lot of theater in New York, you know, off, off, way the heck off Broadway theater. And I started auditioning for commercials. And I auditioned for over 100 commercials and didn't book anything. And then I moved to L.A. And the first year there, I did not book anything. And then I switched agents and I started booking right away. And I then ended up doing... I keep saying over 50 commercials, but I've now been saying that for a number of years. So I actually have no idea how many it is anymore. So, but definitely over 50. And that was, you know, a way to keep my bills paid. And it, it was half my income in L.A. We don't have very many commercials here in, in New Orleans. I have sort of the opposite experience. I moved from Dallas to Los Angeles in the, in the late 70s. And I was working constantly in Dallas at that point almost all commercials. So when I got to Los Angeles, I got a great commercial agent the first week I was there. And I started to work right away doing commercials. And then I got a call from a competing agent, recruited me, ended up recruiting me away from the agent I had. And like an idiot, I went with this other agency (laughs) and I didn't work for a year. (laughs) So, you know, there's no one, uh, there's no one roadmap. That's for sure. I talk in my book about how having it be about your agent is a bad plan. I I think a lot of actors think that if they were to just have the right agent, that their career would click into place. And that is true for a few people. But that's not a good plan. I think the plan should be to to get as much work as possible. And then you will attract agents, as you found, you know, when you work begets work, but it also attracts attention. And gives you legitimacy as somebody that can say, I can 
make money for you. You can support yourself off 10% of me. So, you know, that, that idea that somehow getting an agent means you're discovered or that getting the right agent would make your career happen in some, you know, way that you fantasize about, I think that is the biggest time waster and energy waster for many, many most actors. I think I've learned over the years is that no matter how good your agent is or, or who they are, you still have to be responsible for trying to create opportunities for yourself. Well, and as I say in the book as well, I, I, you get 90% of the money. What makes you think they would do more than 10% of the work? So they're not going to be more invested in your career than you are. Right. So you have to set the tone for how big the investment in the career is. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. You went to L.A. when you were, what, 28, do you say in the book? Is that right? Yeah, I was 28 when I moved. Well, that's another commonality we have. I was 29. You know, one of the biggest questions I get in, in a blog I formerly had before I do the podcast, and even now I got a letter last week from a fellow, and this is the most, the, the question I get most often, how do you go about starting a career when you're over 30 or over 40, I get that often. And it's from people who wanted to pursue acting when they were younger, but they deferred those dreams for something more practical in many cases. And it's, it's difficult to know how to advise people actually on, on what to do there. What, what would your advice be to someone who came to you and they were 35 or 40 and, and they said, you know, I, I really am, mad at myself for deferring this dream and I'm going to do it. How would you advise them to proceed? Do you have any clues there? Well, I will tell you this, which is that, you know, I started late, you started late, Joanna Cassidy started late. Um, You know, there are a lot of people, John Mahoney started late, Morgan Freeman started late. There are a lot of people who start late. Yep. But I, I think what I, what I try and remember is that there's a lot of great practical advice you could give somebody like that about the statistical uh, anomaly it would take for them to ever get anywhere with their career. Uh, but I remember back in the day, there was this bouncer at the limelight in New York, this bar, that a nightclub. And, um, and I remember there, this story of there was this bouncer there, and he kept saying how he was going to write a one-man show and that Robert De Niro was going to come see the show and be so blown away by it, but that Robert De Niro was going to make his movie out of the, you know, make a movie out of it, and he was going to star in it. And it just sounded like, you know, the guy was in his 40s, and he's a bouncer at the limelight. You know, like, if you loved him, if he was your best friend... You would tell him, dude, (laughs) (laughs) seriously, like, because I love you, I say, let it die. Let the dream die. That would be the kind thing to do 99% of the time. However, that person happened to be Chaz Palminteri, who wrote a one-man show called Bronx Tale, and Robert De Niro attended his show and then decided to make the movie starring Chaz Palminteri. So, you know, I think that... I'm not in charge of other people's destinies and how practical or impractical they are. I would never tell somebody not to pursue something just because it was stupid or crazy. And certainly not because it's a statistical anomaly. But, you know, you would have to be smarter, more practical, and way better than the other people around you in order to really make it work. That's, I guess, the best advice I could give is that You'd have to, you know, I knew I was starting late at 25, so I didn't go to L.A. I went to New York and got trained, and I worked very hard to be the best actor I could possibly be. And I moved to L.A. at 28 when I knew that I could handle playing Shakespeare and Ibsen. And, you know, I knew that I understood what the elements of acting were. And, you know, I, I had the confidence of being good I didn't have anything else. I had a, you know, pretty much a blank resume and aging bones. But but I had the confidence of knowing that I was really well trained and that I actually understood what it was I was being asked to do as an actor. Now, it took me a while to adjust to film and television, but uh, you know, from the stage, but I had an understanding of what makes a great performance. 
And so, you know, once I fit that together with the practical information of how to actually be in the film and TV world, then I was kind of hard to beat a lot of times, you know? And I was new. And at an age where nobody's new, I was new. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, and that's what Kathy Joosten had going for her as well. Um, Kathy Joosten, who has passed now, but was uh, won two Emmys for her role on Desperate Housewives, was nominated for four, and uh, is well known as Mrs. Landingham on West Wing. Uh, you know, she's a beloved actress. She's been on a million TV shows, guest spots, whatever. I don't even know how many commercials. I mean, she just really had an amazing career that did not start. She didn't come to L.A. until she was in her 50s. Yeah. And she was in a group I had called the Support Hose that would meet once a week. Oh, and, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. And she was in our group for, I guess it was about, I want to say like eight or ten years. You know, she understood that she would have to work harder and be better because she was going to have to go up against Cloris Leachman. But she was new. Everybody already knew Cloris. So she, even though she was old, she was new. <laughs> It's interesting that you mention her because it's an article about her that I um, alluded to on the, a blog I used to have called uh, Still Acting After All These Years was the name of my blog. And and that's what draws people that are looking for information on becoming an actor, quote unquote, later in life, was that article about about her and the success that she had and how late she started and all that. It, it was a real encouragement to people and, and people would read that and say, you know, maybe, maybe so. Now, what I, the, right. the thing I tell people is that they should start where they are. And that's what you did in New York. And that's what I did when I was in Dallas before I moved to Los Angeles. And it's easier now in a way to do that because production has spread out yes. from Los Angeles and New York. You don't necessarily have to be in Los Angeles to do a fair amount of work any longer. You can be in New Orleans or in North Carolina or in Dallas or Austin or in uh, New Mexico or lots of places where are Atlanta, for heaven's sake. Um, where there's a lot of work going on as well. And yeah. if you're in one of those centers, what my advice to this fellow, he was in Florida. I said, well, you know, start working where you are. Don't right. don't decide to pick up and you're going to pick up and move to Los Angeles. Start working where you are. Get in an acting group. Get in a class. Do some theater. Start uh, trying to get cast in the shows that are shooting in your location so that you can build a resume and start and start to build some craft because you haven't done this for years. So you need to, you know, you need to do some learning and there are ways to do that and make some money along the way where you are before moving somewhere else where there are thousands and thousands of actors that you'll be competing with. So, you know, it's certainly, and I agree with you. I don't, I don't um, think it's my place to try and ruin somebody's dream or tell them they're crazy or something, because you know what, if, if it's that, inside them that for years they haven't been able to let it go then then maybe they should pursue it at least on some level well it doesn't matter if it's crazy or stupid so what yeah so what that, yeah people do crazy stupid things all the time and you know i mean if it's your dream if it if it if you aren't going to rest until you know then that's worth something to find out it absolutely is i agree i agree when you went to los angeles you you had did you have any trouble getting a theatrical agent? I got a commercial agent right away, but I had a lot of trouble getting a theatrical agent because I didn't have a lot of theatrical credits. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I, I'm in a movie that won two Academy Awards and was nominated for more and for Golden Globes. And, you know, I, I have a movie in the theaters right now that is a fantastic movie that I love called Now You See Me. You know, I... I I have had a really good run lately, and I don't waste my energy wondering how easy it would be for me to get an agent in L.A. right now, because it's just, you have to understand, and this is why your advice about staying where you are to start is important for anybody of any age. You have to understand that in L.A., and, and I have no judgment of this. This is just the fact. The fact is that they are only interested in proof of ability to continue making money. That is what they need to know. They need to know as an agency that you are in a position where your income will affect their income 
in a positive way. And if you have no proof of that, or if there's some, mm, I don't know, like maybe she had a good year, but, you know, she lives in New Orleans now, I feel like dealing with that, you know, whatever, whatever is their thing, you know, there's always somebody else waiting in the waiting room. So they have no reason to go out of their way for you unless somebody, like, gets a thing about you where they're like, oh, no, I'm a fan, I want to promote that person. But, you know, there's so many other people that if you have any caveats whatsoever, there's really no reason to bank on you unless you have proof. So you want to go to L.A. with your SAG card already taken care of, with a resume that already reflects that you have gone through the casting process, through being on a set, through what it is to be a working actor, and that you can show that you know what it is to be in front of a camera, and that you can collect a check. A lot of people talk on uh, auditions about owning the room when yeah. you walk in. That's really interrelated, at least in my thinking, to confidence. What do you mean when you tell someone that, you know, talk about owning the room in an audition? What does that mean? Well, at its most uh, elementary level, it means that you need to use that room as your set. And so you have to establish that room as the setting for your scene. But the level at which we're discussing now, what it means is that when you walk into the room, I find it very difficult to get a job if I walk in the room only thinking about getting a job. If I am concerned with, you know, what they're going to think of me or whether I made the right choices or all these ideas about what could go wrong, uh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to be there while I'm there. I'm going to be thinking about things that aren't under my control. Whereas if I walk into the room, in order to show them what I worked on, show them the choices I made, and let them be in charge of whether or not I'm right for the part, and let them be in charge of whether or not it's going well, and let them be in charge of whether or not you know I am going to actually get this part, I, I am in a much better place if I go in there with the goal of showing off and saying, this is what I came up with in my living room. And, you know, if, if you have that, then it's not just that you own the room or have a sense of confidence around you. You actually get to have fun. I think that fun is underrated in most <laughs> careers. But in this, in this career, it's actually vital because if you're having fun doing the work, people are probably having fun watching it. Early in, in my time in Los Angeles, I got into a play at the Wilshire Theater that was a role doing an understudy for a role I had created in the original play at the Dallas Theater Center. And that was in a play called The Oldest Living Graduate with Henry Fonda and Cloris Leachman and George Grizzard and all this huge, great cast and including Harry Dean Stanton. And, and the thing that makes me relate to your story that I want you to tell about Shirley MacLaine is that Harry Dean Stanton, and hopefully all you people out there who are actors, and if you want to be an actor, you've got to know who Harry Dean Stanton is. He's a fantastic actor with a long, long career. If you don't know who he is, do some homework. Yeah, but he's kind of a cool dude, so yeah. most young people know who he yeah, is. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> well, Harry had this small part, one, maybe two scenes with Henry Fonda. And it really was Fonda's scene, of course, but every night I would stand off stage and I could not take my eyes off Harry Dean Stanton because whether he had a line or not, he was so riveting in that scene that even though he was on stage with Henry Fonda, it was Harry Dean Stanton that I was watching. He was that good. And I thought, man, this, this guy is awesome. He, he didn't have to be talking to be acting and to be involved and to be dynamic. And that was such a great lesson. So, uh, you know, I really related to your story about when, when you went to L.A. and your first big film there, I think, was with Shirley MacLaine. Can you tell that story about what happened there? 
Well, funnily enough, it actually shot in Texas. Yeah, it was my first movie, and it was the sequel to Terms of Endearment. You know, they had Jack Nicholson and Ben Johnson and, you know, a number of Academy Award winners. And my scenes were with Miranda Richardson at the time that she was competing with herself for the Academy Award, uh, Juliette Lewis when she had just come off Cape Fear and that Oscar nomination, a number of other people, Mary Gross, whatever. But Shirley MacLaine was supposed to walk in to our scene, sit down in an audience watching us because we were playing actors on a sitcom. And uh, so she's going to be in the studio audience. And she has no lines. And she, her job is to be in the studio audience when the camera moves to catch the grandmother of Juliette Lewis watching Juliette Lewis. We'd been working for a couple of days by this point, but we do this scene and then... I say bye and we leave and the camera finds Shirley in the audience and she's supposed to clap. That's it. So I was like blown away that basically Shirley was a background player in my scene, you know, <laughs> so, um, well, our scene in any case, but, but yeah, so the scene, the scene plays out the first time and I say bye and Shirley starts doing like this, uh, epic tale of a grandmother's reaction to her granddaughter being on TV. And when I say that she created her whole own universe <laughs> with no lines and no time, I mean, it was the, one of the most remarkable things I had ever seen as an actor. And I understood immediately that she had stolen our scene. I had five days of work on that. I had lots of scenes. So I get to the premiere and I'm walking in the door, my first premiere uh, as an actor. And I'm walking in the door and the director and I happen to walk through at the same time. And I'm like, oh, hey. And he says, oh, wow. Hey, it's so good to see you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't know exactly what he meant, but I had a feeling. And then as the movie unfolds, the, all of my scenes are gone until the moment where I say, bye. And then the camera zooms into Shirley as she creates this epic tale. <laughs> and I, I figured out that, okay, so that's how you steal a scene. And I decided that the number one thing she did that I needed to start doing right away was she gave herself permission to do it. Mm, that's interesting. She was a background player, and she gave herself permission to turn that nothing moment into a full-blown story. And that's when I understood no small parts, only small actors, and that having no lines should not be an impediment to you stealing an entire scene out from a bunch of really good people. And I don't include myself in that lot at that point. I was brand new. But, you know, she stole that scene out from a bunch of really talented people. I wanted to figure out how she was doing what she was doing and then be able to do that. We're running out of time. I'm speaking with Laura Cayouette. We're talking about acting and her career and a great book that she has that we're going to tell you how to get hold of it. It's called No Small Parts. That's K-N-O-W, No Small Parts. Two quick things and I'll let you go, Laura. I, I have to ask you the Quentin Tarantino question. Uh, <laughs> uh, Laura mentioned a, a few minutes ago that she was in a couple of pretty high profile movies. I would say so uh, right now, actually, very, very recently. That would be Django Unchained, which was a huge hit at the end of last year, an Academy Award winner and a great movie. And probably all of you listening have seen that. And then she's also in a, a wonderful movie that's out now, called Now You See Me. Now, the interesting thing about Now You See Me is that it's so illustrative of what this book is about, I think, because you have uh, one scene, but it's mm -hmm. a very prominent scene, and it's a very good scene, and it's a very key scene in the movie because it helps set up um, the the character for oh, why am I going blank? Uh, for uh, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, for Woody Harrelson. Thank you. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a crucial scene in, in setting the stage for his character throughout the whole film. And and it's it's wonderfully done. And it really illustrates what you're talking about in this book of, of taking what is a small part and making a really uh, nice moment out of it that people will remember. 
Well, I think that's always my goal ever since watching that moment with Shirley is to become unforgettable. And you, you can't always do it because you have to keep the movie or the television show in mind as you're working. And so there are times where it's just really not your turn. Um, but whenever there's room for you to have your own moment, then yeah, I want to I steal every scene I'm in and be unforgettable. I want to come in and have two lines as Rocket and Kill Bill and have you never forget, oh, yeah, that girl, you know? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I want to be able to do that and have that always at my fingertips. Okay, here's the Tarantino question. Okay. And, and, this, and this comes from something that happened oh, to I me. Oh, go ahead. Before you get to Tarantino, mm -hmm. I want to say, I actually just yesterday um, did another one of those scenes where um, – the movie is called American Heist, and of course, you should never speak about it before you find out whether you're on the cutting room floor. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, but uh, Hayden Christensen is the star of the movie, and my scene was with him, and it, it sort of is another one of those trajectory sort of scenes where it sets off, okay, here's who this character is, where he is in his stage of life, and what's going to happen next is all from a result of this scene. So, you know, it's it, I only have a few lines, but the impact my character has on, and, and my character's name is Lone Officer. It's not like a big part or anything, you know, it's just a scene. But my... I hate that. <laughs> I can live with that. I can live I know. With that. It's my insurance. I know. Yeah, exactly. I know. I just <laughs> wish they had a name. I always wanted to, I give them a name, you know. So. Yeah, well, Imelda. Imelda the Lone Officer. There you go. <laughs> so, so, you know, the scene's about him, and, and you have to remember that when you're doing a smaller part, that you know, the scenes about him. But like in life, we all star in our own movies in, in real life. You know, we all think everybody else is the supporting cast. You have to, even in a moment like that, where it's really about the other character, you do have to bring your full load to the table. You have to bring everything that a whole human being would bring to a moment where they think the moment is probably about them. Well, you know, she's good stuff, yeah. Yeah, she's not thinking, loan officer is not sitting around thinking that she's changing this person's life in one way or the other. She's thinking about her own stuff. And that was a lot of what I had to deal with on um, Django Unchained as well, is that, you know, I'm often in scenes that are about nothing to do with my character. And she just happens to be there. So if you make it too much about you, then it sets the movie askew. And you stick out instead of standing out. But if you just remember that your character has her own life, her uh, you know his or her own life, own things going on in their head, and own movie they're starring in, you get those opportunities to steal a scene without running the scene out of balance. All the young actors out there, or even the old goats like me, need to listen to that really carefully and play that back a few times because there's some there's some really good stuff there. Uh, in what you just said. Years ago, I had the opportunity to work in a small part in a film with David Lynch. And of course, at that time, David Lynch was one of the hottest directors in the business. And so I had this perception of what it would be like to work with him. I thought he would be maybe even want to give line readings. I didn't know. And I thought, well, he has such a definite style that I just don't know what to expect. But I think he's going to be really controlling. And he was exactly the opposite of that. It was he was great. He was very open to what the actors did, and and it was it was fun. It was a, a lot of fun. So how is working with Tarantino maybe different than what the perception of somebody would be if they weren't on the set with him? How does he work with his actors? I'm going to answer that in a second because I first want to re you reminded me that um, Richard Dreyfuss one time I asked him. I, I was a big fan of Barry Levinson when I had first moved to L.A. You know, I I'm, was born in D.C., grew up in Maryland, and so I was a huge fan of Barry Levinson, and he had done a movie with him. And I asked him, I said, you know, what is it that gets, that you know, Barry Levinson can get these amazing performances out of, like, Tom Cruise, out of, you know, all these people that he just he just pulls out their very best work. How does he do that? And he said, oh, God, do you really want to know? And I said, yeah. And he said, he hires the best and then gets out of the way. <laughs> so, 
So there is that that version of events. Yeah. Uh, Quentin is not that. But ask me the question again so that I make sure I'm answering the exact question you're asking. Well, I'm just curious about how he is on the set, how he works with his actors. How is is he well that's it. How does he work with his actors uh, and maybe not not the star actors necessarily, but the supporting players? Well, I would first say that um he, the answer is individually. So he treats individuals as individuals. He doesn't have a blanket way that he directs, which is rare. Um, most directors have a style of directing, and that's how they direct. Quentin's direction style is tailored to whoever he's directing at that moment. Um, but I think, I think there's a genuine... Well, first of all, there's his huge enthusiasm that sets him apart from every other director. Um, the only person I ever saw who even came close to the level of enthusiasm as Quentin is Tony Scott. And, you know, it's that, and I've never worked with Scorsese, but I've heard the same of him. Um, you know, that that love of movies becomes infectious and you just get caught up in it. And you, you know, you're making something great when you're working with him. So you want to rise to the occasion that's been afforded to you. But the thing that, uh, that I find to make him completely unique and and that ties into my book is that um, he hires every single person that's in every like we have people picking cotton people you know I mean in Django there's, there's a cast of thousands I mean it just it goes on forever uh, when you count all the background people and everything and he selected every single one of them and so he's just not filling slots. He, he has every single person he's chosen as an actor for that particular role. And he sees each one of those parts as a role. And so by the time you end up with a line in his movies, you're a full-blown character he's given a lot of thought to. And he, he brings that to every part. And I think that is a truly unique thing. I, I commented when we were working on Django that I thought it was interesting that he killed off, uh, and this is a spoiler alert, but that he killed off almost every famous person in the movie mm -hmm. <laughs> before the end scene. And that what a weird thing to leave the ending in the hands of the also-rans, you know, and, yep. and to trust, and this is the crux of what I'm saying, and to trust that he had already built each one of us into people you would care about their death, whether positively or negatively, that, that Walter Goggins' character would have already been built enough and that, you know, each of these characters would have been uh, in your brain enough, whether it's Cora and, you know, the, on the stairs or, you know, whatever is the character that, that you would care whether they lived or died, whether you were happy they lived or died. And... And I thought that was unique, that he would leave such a big, like we had this big, big gun battle and everybody's dead now. Mm -hmm. And still the movie's going, you know. <laughs> and and the, that would seem to be an anticlimax, that you would now be only killing off smaller parts. And I don't think it plays that, well, that way at all. As a matter of fact, um, pretty universally, the, the death scene that I got to do is, you know, one of the more unforgettable moments for a lot of people. So... Um, you know, my character was a small character. Nobody should really care that much whether she lives or dies or how she lives or dies. And yet that became a moment a lot of people got very invested in and even had heated arguments about on the, you know, on the web <laughs> as to whether or not I deserve to die or whether or not it made Django a bad guy for having killed me. And the answer to that, by the way, is I owned people. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Just, that is true. Let's just settle that right now. Yes, I owned people. I'm cool with Laura Lee dying. So, but um, but yeah, that um, I thought that was confident of him to know that he had built each of those parts up enough that it would be interesting. I do carry with me that memory of so misjudging what it would be like to work with somebody like a David Lynch or someone of that ilk. Well. We're gonna we're gonna wrap. Well, wait, I am before you let me go because mm -hmm. I I don't now I realize I didn't fully answer your question though. There's music all the time. We use film instead of digital. So every time you run a I think it was a thousand feet of film, um, we would stop and do a toast. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. Every single every single birthday is celebrated. Wow. With a cake and a song. 
Uh, the cakes were all individualized. Some of them had painted, you know, the person's portrait or whatever, or, you know, their cat or whatever. You know, they were, each person got their own cake and their own song. There were efforts made because so many people had been so far from home for so long. There were efforts made to create a social life for everybody there where you could go out on Friday nights with the gang or you could go um, to a movie on Sunday and have Quentin introduce the movie and watch something from his private collection. You know, there were lots of efforts made to create a family. And I will say that that I'm sure there are other directors who do this. And uh, Spike Lee, despite his, you know, foul mouth behavior about our movie, um, Spike Lee is somebody who tends to work with the same people over and over again. And I assume creates some sort of family out of that. Um, you know, there are others who do it. Um, but Quentin really does make it feel like a, a family, like we're all in this together. And, and we, we go down as a family and we rise as a family. And, and so that experience of being part of the Tarantino family, I had already had that and I'm spoiled by it. And for the people that had never experienced it before, I, I could see that it was really unique for them. So I think that's really... Okay, there are a lot of things. That are yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, but that gives a flavor. I mean, that's the kind of thing I was interested in. Was was what's what's the set like? What's what's the uh, experience like? And that's that's really good stuff that well, you don't you don't hear talk about much. You'll never work harder. I mean, that you'll never work harder, and partly because you will put so much pressure on yourself to deliver a Tarantino level performance. I yeah. mean, you already know walking on what his movies are capable of and what the people in his movies are capable of. So you don't go there to suck. Okay. Right. You go there to yeah. deliver. So you will flog yourself until you get it right. So it's a grueling environment because of the hours, because of the demands of the, you know, I mean, Django was one of the most grueling shoots of my entire career because of all the physical stuff of mm -hmm. wearing those clothes, the heat, the, I couldn't eat in that corset, you know, I mean, going to the bathroom was a big damn deal. You know, like everything was sure a lot of work. But that said, it, it was one of the most enriching experiences of my life. And, you know, that thing of feeling that you're part of something, very few directors, when you walk on their set, do you know in advance that you're making something that will last. And so you, you know, you feel that. You feel that millions of people all over the world will watch this forever. And so you will definitely, I, I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself to be great, not just to be good, but to be great and to rise to the occasion of those around me and, and the situation I was in. And, um, and so that, I think, is another thing that is definitely unique is that everybody's bringing their A game or else. Well, it sure paid off because it was a terrific movie. And then that's been borne out by the amount of business it did and the number of awards that it won. It's a, it's a terrific movie. I'm sure everyone listening, wherever they are in the world, and this podcast gets heard in about, I think, 120 countries from time to time now. So there will be, will be people around the world who will be familiar with, with that film and many of the other films that you've been in. Laura Cayouette, thank you so much for being with me on Actors Talk. I really do appreciate it. There's so much more that if we had time, and I won't, uh, I won't keep you any longer, uh, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, uh, it's a book that, listen, actors, no matter if you are a beginning actor, certainly you will want to go out and pick up no small parts. But even if you're like me, who's been uh, around for a while, there are many, many things that I was either reminded of or were clarified for me in the book. There's always a way to learn. It's a very, very good book. And I think that every actor should go out and make this a part of your library. Uh, it is it is that good. And it's told from the point of view of someone who not only has been there, but is still there working. And that resonates throughout the book. You can't get that kind of uh, viewpoint without actually doing the work. And Laura Coyote has and is doing the work. Thank you so much. Well, I, before you go, I did want to clarify. The name of the book is No Small Parts. The subtitle is An Actor's Guide to Turning Minutes into Moments and Moments into a Career. And I wanted to acknowledge the contribution of Richard Dreyfus, who wrote my foreword for me. 
And also to thank all the people who endorsed the book from Kevin Costner, Victoria Burroughs, the casting director, um, you know, Adam Rifkin, the director, Reggie, uh, Reginald Hudlin, the producer, you know, um, Lou Diamond Phillips, the actor. You know, there are a yeah. lot of people. Joanna who have Cassidy, it. yeah, lots, yeah. lots of lots of people. Absolutely, and it's a great looking book too. Wonderful cover and yeah. and everything. It's a it's a, it's a terrific book, and you really should uh, add it to your library. You it's, know, the cover was designed by my stand-in. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She did. Yeah, she. Um, the photograph is by a guy named Sean Andrews in L.A. But the uh, the design of the cover is by the girl that was my stand-in on Django. Well, she did a great job. Yes, yes. She did a great job. Yeah, it's uh, it's a first-class job, no question about it, and it's a first-class book. Thanks, uh, thanks again for being with me, and I I really appreciate it. I, I think uh, all the actors out there will really enjoy hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much. Well, I want to thank Laura Coyote once again. What a terrific book. No Small Parts, An Actor's Guide to Turning Minutes into Moments and Moments into a Career. You know, it's really something when you read a book, you're instantly able to tell if the person knows what they're talking about. And someone can know what they're talking about from sort of a clinical perspective. They can have the information. They can have the statistics. They can have the book learning. You know what I mean? But it's very, very different. It takes a book or any sort of instructional tool to another level when that person has lived the life and knows what they're talking about. And all of that kind of uh, comes through in Laura's book, No Small Parts. She knows what she's talking about, and she's very capable of uh, transmitting that knowledge in a way that even some Dumbo like me can understand. So if you are um, an actor who's toward the beginning of your career, get this book. I really think it will be something that you will end up doing like I did, which is underlining passages, dog-earing pages, and all that. And I ain't no beginner, so take that for what it's worth. No small parts. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful addition to the Actors Library. Now, I promised an announcement about an upcoming episode, and I'm really excited about that, too. uh, As soon as I get this episode online, I begin preparation for an interview with director John Badham. You know John Badham from his many, many films, including, but not the least of which, of course, is Saturday Night Fever, also Dracula, Whose Life Is It Anyway, Blue Thunder, War Games, American Flyers, Short Circuit, Stakeout, Bird on a Wire, The Hard Way, Point of No Return, on and on and on, and just dozens and dozens of uh, very good episodic television, uh, television episodes as well. John Badham in an upcoming episode of Actors Talk. I'm really excited about speaking with Mr. Badham, and we'll be talking about his new book, John Badham on Directing. Well, that's it. Until next time, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining me on Actors Talk. I do appreciate it. This is Tommy G. Kendrick. Hope to see you in the movies. Until next time, that's a wrap on Actors Talk. See ya. God bless. Goodbye. <laughs>